Hello and welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy with my co-host Mary Stone. Hi, Mary. Hi, Kate. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. So, Kate, we're fast moving into autumn. Where did that summer go? Oh, and... Do remember, if you're at school or uni or wherever you're studying, you can book a study space in one of our libraries. Libraries are a fantastic place to escape from all those distractions at home that stop us getting stuck into learning. So make sure you get down to the library. For the moment, you need to book in advance by calling us on 01962 454747 with the numbers on our website and we'll also include it in our show notes. Okay, so in this episode, the title is inspired by our fantastic guest author, Heather Morris, who joined us to talk about all three of her books, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, Silka's Journey, and her newest book, Stories of Hope. Later in the podcast, we're going to be chatting with one of our library colleagues about another book that tells the story of a man who managed to survive and flourish against all the odds. That's My Name is Why by Lem Sisse, which is one of our unlimited audiobooks on BorrowBox this month. Okay, so on to Heather Morris, whose books have absolutely taken the world by storm since her first Tattooist of Auschwitz was published less than three years ago, and it's now one of the best-selling books of the 21st century. And what is incredible, really, is the fact that Heather was in her 60s when it first came out. Phenomenal. For anyone who isn't already aware of the story, and there's probably only a few that aren't, uh, The Tattooist of Auschwitz is the story of Lali and Gita, who meet and fall in love in the face of the worst kind of adversity. It's based on Lali's own version of the events, when in his late 80s, he decided to share his story with Heather Morris. Her second book, Silka's Journey, follows a commitment made to Lali to make sure her story was told as well. Silka played a vital role in Lali and Gita's love story, and having survived Auschwitz, ended up in a Siberian gulag for 15 years. Her newest book, Stories of Hope, gives some insight into the story behind the story. How did this New Zealander come across this extraordinary story in the first place? So here's Heather talking to Kate. Uh, The interview kicks off with Heather reading a short passage from the introduction to Stories of Hope. Stories of Hope explores listening. How through listening to others, we will find inspiration in the everyday lives of those around us. The day I met Lali Sokolov, a few weeks after the death of his wife, He told me he hoped he could stay alive long enough to tell me his story. He didn't want to be with me, he said. Every time I knocked on his door, he wanted to be with Gita. Those were the words he said to me each day, until the day he said he now hoped he could live for long, as long as it took for him to talk, for me to listen, so I could write his story. I had no qualifications for this. What I did possess, though... Oh, though I didn't think about it at the time, was my ability to listen, truly, actively listen. Daily I went to work in the social work department of a large Melbourne hospital. There I engaged with patients, family members, carers, other hospital professionals. They spoke, I listened. Often they didn't know what to say or how to say what they were thinking, feeling. Yes, feeling more than thinking. It didn't matter. 
by staying quiet, letting them know I wasn't going anywhere, that I was there to listen, help if I could, often they found enough words. It was a privilege to be the person a stranger found themselves talking to and occasionally being able to make a small difference to their lives at a time of tragedy or trauma. Now the privilege of hearing stories is sent to me by readers of the Tattooist of Auschwitz and Silke's journey. I am in awe of the outpouring of emotion shared with me, touched by the knowledge that telling Lully and Cecilia, Silke Klein's stories, has connected with so many, that reading their stories has had a profound impact on men and women, old and young, across the world, and helped them in a dark moment of their lives. I sincerely hope that in writing to me and sharing the hope they have of waking up the next day and the next, I continue to make a small difference. I don't get to see or touch my readers, but I often put faces to them, picture them and the surroundings they describe. While reading people's letters, I am listening to them too. Normally, when I talk to an author, we tend to just chat about their latest book. But in your case, I tend to think that all three of your books, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, Silke's Journey and and Stories of Hope, they're all part of the same journey. Do you think that makes sense? Oh, absolutely. Yes. um, One followed the other, followed the other, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. And why do you think it is that the stories of Lali, Gita and Silke give people such hope? Well, you know, Lali used to describe himself as just an ordinary man. And I then would tack on, yes, but you lived through an extraordinary time. And I think it's that people can relate to just an ordinary man and an ordinary girl. And, uh, yeah, and cheer for them and know that their survival, well, it came about through, well, perseverance. It came about from luck. And uh, from that, we can find hope in our own lives because we're all going through something pretty tragic and traumatic right now. And um, why not look for hope wherever you can find it? There's one instance I know you talk about in Stories of Hope of someone in a completely different circumstance who um, who are having family issues, but they read the book, they read The Tattooist of Auschwitz and take hope for their own life from that, which is really an uplifting story. Well, that's why I wrote the book, because I may have only told you one or two in the book, but actually I have thousands of those emails. I figure, wow, if you can make yourself vulnerable and open up to me and you only know me through a website or maybe you have heard me speak then maybe I should find the courage to do the same and be a little bit more open about myself because I've tended not to do that. One of the things you talk about being an active listener is making yourself vulnerable um, in order to be for other people to be able to open up. Absolutely you have to and, and that was how of course I got Lully's story Here I was spending several weeks with him and I was hearing clinical and factual things from him and they were all lacking the emotion that I knew he was hiding. And there were times when he'd start to say something and he'd look at me and then he'd stop. And it was only by taking him home and introducing him to my family that I found that he could get to know me because he had to get to know me if he was going to trust me. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, 
The Tattooist of Ash, which is, of course, your first book, and I find it incredible to believe that it came out in this country less than three years ago because it's already had such an impact on the world. But could you tell us a bit about the impact it's had on your life? You've touched on it already. Oh, massive. Um, (laughs) I say 75% of it good, but I reserve 25% of it uh, being that it has impacted me being around my family. I do not have to travel the amount that I do. I choose to do that, but that does come with a cost. But um, look, here I was getting ready for retirement, um, perhaps taking up a golf. I considered that. I definitely wanted to learn to play the guitar. Now instead, I get to have this amazing life. I did hear that uh, your husband, Steve, said, yes, it's not quite the retirement that we were expecting. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I understand you were surprised by the interest in the story behind the story of Lali's life. That is how his story came to be told through you, which in many ways is the focus of your newest book, Stories of Hope. I know you must get asked this all the time, but would you mind telling us how you first got to hear about Lali's story? I'd love to. But first, yes, I will comment on what you said about being uh, surprised and sometimes overwhelmed by the amount of interest in how I got the story and who I am. Because I think about the the books that I read and, and the authors that I follow, and there's not been many occasions when I've thought, oh, I wonder if I can go and find out more about how they... Uh, wrote that story other than from a you know, maybe a, a clinical um, way. But, yeah, you know, it's one of those things that I'd been saying no to a, catching up with a friend for months because I lived too far away from where she lived and I made every excuse under the sun, didn't I? And finally I did. And then one Sunday afternoon sitting at a cafe in Melbourne, my friend just casually said to me, I have a friend whose mother has just died. His father has asked him to find somebody he can tell a story to. That person can't be Jewish. You're not Jewish. Do you want to meet him? It was as simple as that. And when I asked her, well, what's his story? And she didn't know. I said, never mind. Yeah, I'd love to meet him. So, uh, yes, a week later, I knocked on the apartment door of Lully to be greeted by him and his two doggies. (laughs) Uh, and it took you. It took him a while to tell your story, his story, because first of all, it was sort of little snippets, little vignettes, sometimes in a different language. So it did take a while. It took you properly listening. Oh, absolutely. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Because he was a man who was grieving terribly, and he just wanted to join Gita, and he kept saying that to me all the time, hurry up. He didn't know how to tell his story. He, he was 87 years of age, and he was in that time and place where he wanted to get so much out but he didn't know how to tell it he couldn't complete a vignette uh, on any one given day and it was a matter of my starting to just enjoy his company never knowing if I was ever going to get a story from him at all but it didn't matter finally bit by bit it came out and I started stringing it together and writing it down and then researching And then I went, oh, my goodness, what have I got? Hmm. I found it fascinating that when you found it hard to listen properly, if it told you something just too difficult or traumatic to deal with, you'd find a way through by by reaching down and stroking his little doggies. Absolutely. 
Uh, there's nothing more comforting and unconditional love giving than a pet. And those two doggies were sitting with us the whole time. Every now and then one of them would wake up and sort of grab a tennis ball and want to run around. But they were brilliant. You know, he did the same thing too. And there'd be times when I would look down and I'd be scratching maybe Tootsie's ear and, and he'd be scratching Bam Bam's. And that those doggies were a source of comfort to him the entire time I knew him. And for me, they were just enough for me to, yeah, get myself together. And I love the story about uh, Lali and you going to the cinema so he could decide which actor was the best to play him on screen. Oh, so many movies I saw during that time. <laughs> I was having to sneak out from work. I was lucky I had a brilliant boss and I could just say to go and say to her, I said, look, um, can I just have the afternoon off? I've got to go to the movies. And she'd go, yeah, of course you can. Uh, because often he didn't like going out at night very much. And so we had to go to movies during the daytime. But movie after movie and, Lally, what do you think of him? And he'd just roll his eyes at me and go, what are you thinking? He doesn't look anything like me. So, and look, it was a hilarious time. But I think he just kept going because my daughter, who he'd become quite sort of captivated by, uh, we realised, and or he told me, she was the same age that Gita was uh, when he first met my daughter. Yeah, she happened to work at this theatre, the cinema, and she was always there to greet us and give him a cup of coffee and he'd chat and flirt to her and she'd take us into the theatre. And can you remember which, which actor he decided in the end was the one he would like to be played by? Well, once I told him he couldn't have Brad Pitt, he did settle absolutely on Ryan Gosling and he would look no further. Well, I can't blame him for that, no. I know it was important to you kind of not to write notes, so you had to scramble home at the end of the uh, end of a, a, a conversation with him to write up your notes and do your research afterwards and then check back with him afterwards because it was important not to get in the way and not to stop his train of thought for when he was speaking. Oh, it was essential that he wasn't interrupted and not only not interrupted, but if you think about it, if you're talking to somebody and they're scribbling notes in front of you, you're automatically distracted because you know they're actually not totally listening to you. And I felt that even having a recording device uh, on the table between us would still be a distraction for him. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I was right on that. I think what's so important to me, it's, it's having this personal story told. And in your most recent book, you say that personal suffering must be acknowledged and told, and it's not just the collective. And I think that's such a, mm -hmm. such a huge issue. Oh, absolutely. And I learned that. Well, I didn't learn it. I, I, that was my life for 20 years working in a hospital where every day I was meeting new people, never knowing who or what I was coming to work for, always based around tragedy and trauma. Uh, for real, Nobody came to the social work department because they were having a good day, trust me. The difference being it was an acute hospital which meant that those people only came into my life for brief little spells and they were gone and somebody else was there. Uh, with Lully, of course, it was different. This was ongoing. And yeah, so you, you continued talking to him for, for three years and developing the screenplay. In fact, it started off as, didn't it? Uh, and he was able to, to work through with the screenplay um, uh, reading it and enjoying the fact that his story had finally been captured. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I wasn't getting his story those whole three years per se. He was my friend up until two hours before he died. 
And uh, the last two plus years, it was this amazing friendship that we had. Yes, we were working together with the production company to try and make my screenplay into a film here in Melbourne. And he just loved that. He loved attention. He was such a attention-seeking guy. He wanted to be the limelight in any room he entered. Um, absolutely. And when I'm asked, well, Lully hasn't been around to read your script, your, your sorry, your book, how do we know that he approves it? Well, because he read so many drafts of the screenplay. And the book is just my adaptation of my own screenplay. Now, telling Silk a story was a commitment you made to Lali before he died. Can you tell us how he described Silka and why she was so important to his love story? Well, as he would say to me many, many times, he and I would not be sitting together talking if it wasn't for her. She had saved his life, yeah, but literally saved his life. And for him, she was the bravest person. And he used to wag his finger at me and go, not the bravest girl, but the bravest person I ever knew. And he was you know, absolutely devastated. And, and even all these years later, decades later, he would still get so upset and emotional, talking not only about what happened to her in Auschwitz-Birkenau, but subsequently. Now, he knew that she had survived the, the gulag, and he knew that because Gita had visited her in Slovakia, and the two ladies had kept in touch all those decades. And he would say to me, once again, wagging his finger, he was a big finger wagger, when you've told my story and then go, only after you tell mine, you must tell the world about Silke. And your newest book, Stories of Hope, talks about the work you and your researchers had to undertake to properly tell her story. Well, it was researched not just by me, but by the publishers and also with professional researchers. And I got to that point and researching and having his story where one day I threw my hands up in the air and went, what does it matter if I can't confirm everything he says? I'm not telling the story of the Holocaust. I'm just telling the Holocaust story. I'm just telling lollies. And that really freed me up you know, emotionally and creatively to be able to tell his story. Now, not having Silka, of course, I'm coming from a totally different area, different background. But I did have parts of her story from Lully and from Gita, who talks about her in her show, A Tape. And I spoke to many other survivors who I met here in Melbourne who could talk to me about her. And of course, there are testimonies too, the show testimonies and other testimonies around the world where Silke was mentioned. And so I was able to get a pretty good handle on uh, what had happened to her in Auschwitz-Birkenau. But then, of course, the Siberian Gulag, well, it's a different story. Well, once I'd identified the gulag she was in, I did get a professional researcher in Moscow. And Svetlana was able to uncover amazing documents and photos and testimonies of the very gulag. The only documents I wanted had to come from that gulag. And uh, by having her research it for me, though when I asked her uh, if she would go up to Vorkuta and uh, check out any documents up there, she went, please don't ask me to. It's a four-day train trip from Moscow to Vorkuta. That's how far away it is. But even that wasn't enough. But what I did then find were friends and neighbours of Silkas back in Slovakia and Kosita who were prepared to meet with me and talk to me. And so I made trips back to Kosita, not only meeting these lovely, lovely people, many of them very elderly in their 80s and 90s, but who had known Silka for decades. 
and they shared their, their bits of the different stories they knew. And even the Slovakian authorities, they came on board and let me see documents I had no right to see relating to her family, you know, birth, deaths and marriages, that kind of stuff. Um, the hometown where she was taken from, the documents relating to her education, her reports. She was a good girl. Yeah, I have to travel, but I love it. There is nothing more rewarding than sitting in someone's home and letting them tell you not only the story you're there to hear, but of course they want to tell you this too. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I sense your journey of being able to listen like that and to listen to Lali in the right way began with the time you spent with your beloved great-grandfather as a young girl in New Zealand. Um, can you mm -hmm. tell us a bit about your relationship with him? Well, Gramps was the only person that ever listened to me growing up. It was a classic sort of rural New Zealand upbringing I had, and uh, children were to be seen and not heard. That seemed to be the, the philosophy of all my family, with the exception of this one amazing man, my great-grandfather, and I was privileged to have him living only two paddocks away from where I lived. And for some reason, I think it was because I was the only girl with four brothers that he probably felt sorry for me and took pity on me, but he took me under his wing and I became, according to my brothers, his favourite, which meant that he just gave me all the time in the world to be with him. And he taught me how to listen. He taught me the importance of listening, not only to, to him, but to anything and to everyone and to nothing. Listen to nothing, he would say. We just listen. I'd say, what am I listening to? And he said, everything and nothing. And he, kept, he would say mm -hmm. that to me. And after a while, I knew what he meant. And it was, you just listen to the sounds going on around you. Be part of it. And for me, that was the sounds of you know, rural life, cows, dogs, tractors. You don't hear them if you're just too busy playing and talking yourself. Now, in fact, in your latest book, uh, Stories of Hope, you pass on some really practical advice about how to listen to our elders and maybe have some of those conversations which we might later regret missing out on. Um, maybe could I ask you to talk a little about some of these practical steps? For example, the idea of using an object or a very simple question that connects people back to their past. I thought those were absolutely great. Oh, look, thank you. Absolutely. And that was a classic case with uh, with Gramps, that uh, some days I would just, every afternoon after school, I'd go and sit with him uh, on the back veranda. And some days he would have something in his hand and it would be something that he'd had for decades. And it had, that had no value other than to him. And he would just be holding it and he'd play with it and then he'd hand it to me. And then he'd start telling me about that object, where he got it how he found it, what it meant to him. And it could be anything from a coin to, well, he had actually been in the Boer War in South Africa as a young man, well, young boy, really. And he'd brought things back from there. He had um, been enmeshed in the, the Maori community where we lived and would show me things that he'd collected over the years. And I found that a brilliant way to connect to him through objects, and that's what I suggest. If you're the elderly person, you walk into any one of their rooms, they'll have a knick-knack on a mantelpiece or on the wall. There'll be a reason they have kept that. And um, finally, 
In Stories of Hope, you give us a, a sneak peek into your next project, which tells the story of three sisters and their survival. Um, would you tell us a bit about this project? Yes, I've been working on it all day today. I <laughs> quite love it. It's amazing um, for every sort of detail that you write and you find in my notes, uh, it opens up you know, 10 questions for everyone I answer. That's pretty much what I've been doing a lot today has been trying to draw up another list of questions to ask these two amazing ladies that uh, are alive still whose story I'm going to be writing about. Uh, yeah, this this is, again, a story that came to me through an email. I was in South Africa. I was in, I'm an Australian. I was in South Africa. A man who lives in Canada was visiting his mum in Tel Aviv, and we connected because it took me from South Africa, not home, like I was meant to, but uh, rerouted to Tel Aviv and to meet this amazing lady and her family. So, yes, these three sisters, they were 15, 17, and 19, taken from the same town in Slovakia as Gita was. And that's what the connection was, the fact that the son travelling from Canada to Tel Aviv had picked up my book at the airport and dropped it on the coffee table in his mum's home a day later. And she looked at the cover, because the cover in Canada is the same as the Australian. It has the numbers of the, uh, of the arms with the numbers on it of Lali and Gita. And uh, Olivia just looked at the book cover and just went, that must be about Lali and Gita. Well, that's all I needed to read to know that I needed to get on a plane and go and see her. That was enough. But what I then subsequently learned from her and then also from her sister Magda, who's 96 and still alive, and, uh, and the family story of the other sister, Sibby, who died a few years ago, is going to give you readers, um, I hope, an incredible story of survival. When can we expect to see that on, the, uh, on our bookshelves? Uh, this time next year. I really enjoyed talking to Heather. What an amazing life she's living now. While Heather's books have been so successful, there's been the inevitable backlash from some critics. Yeah, I think it's vital to remember that, as Heather says, she's writing Lali's story, not the entire story of the Holocaust. Yeah, it's so important to hear these personal stories, which must be acknowledged and told, so we're not just hearing a collective history. Okay, so on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by another member of the library team to talk about one of this month's unlimited titles on BorrowBox. These are audiobooks and e-books you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. So here we are with Anne-Marie to talk about the book My Name is Why by Lem Sisse. So Anne-Marie, tell me a bit about Borden Library. Well, Borden Library is technically a tier two library, which means it's about middle size. Nowhere near as big as the discovery centres, but not one of the little titchy ones either. You must really miss those little children coming in, and I'm, I'm sure everyone misses coming along to the libraries for the uh, rhyme times and story times. But uh, but do look online. We do have, uh, you can capture um, story times and rhyme times, both on our YouTube channel and through our Facebook pages as well. So uh, have a look at those. As I say, it doesn't quite replace it, but it's better than nothing. So, Anne-Marie, one thing that we ask all the library staff that join us for the round table is, are you a user of the BorrowBox app? Yes, I am very thoroughly, particularly for e-audiobooks, for e but also e-books as well. 
on to the uh, book itself. Could you tell us a bit about it? Well, it's My Name is Why by Lem Sisse, and it's he calls it a memoir. It's very much a memoir of his time in in the care system from the late 60s to the mid-80s. And it's written and formed in a very interesting way because it's not only his perception on being in the system, it also intercuts with the letters that were in his file from the care workers and between themselves. So that gives a a two-sided, sometimes a three-sided point of view on the story. Some people thought it broke up the narrative, but I really liked that structure. It was really interesting to see that sort of the cold clinical language um, and the support that the social workers were, were trying to give him in a formal way, together with his actual response at the time. Well, I could see why they said it would break up his narrative, but it was nice to have the interplay of both bits, particularly as otherwise I'm, well, I'm a historian by training, so I'm naturally critical. You might otherwise begin to question some elements of his presentation but with the interplay between that and the more as you said the more clinical language it it gives it a veracity and a depth and both that works both ways actually his story gives them a veracity and a bit more depth as well not not that I doubt his perception of the care system or what he says I didn't intend that in any way yeah, we began this conversation talking about the Borough Box app. Um, I listened to this story um, through that. And Lem Sisse himself is the narrator of this audio version, which I thought had an incredible impact on the power of the story. It very much does, because it's his words and a lot of his delivery. It's not just the words that are read, it's how, it's how they're said and the weight behind them in a lot of cases. He put, he puts the emotion in, and I think isn't that's not just the words, it's how they're delivered that provides the emotion. You can say a sentence one way and it will come out flat. You say it another way and it really strikes deep. Yeah, there were times in his reading that I felt he was almost reliving that experience. There was the time when he was first dropped off at the children's home when there was he was practicing smiling and holding his breath at the same time uh, and uh, as a means of coping and you could feel absolutely feel he'd been sent back to that moment as he read it i particularly picked up on the fact that he was very much dancing on the edge of completely falling apart holding it together somehow but internally completely falling apart it was absolutely heartbreaking. And his 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 early life, his life until he left the care system, was just one thing after another of being let down by those that should have been taking care of him, the, the authority. And his hopeless foster parents are absolutely heartbreaking. And uh, I, I'm assuming you sort of agree that it's it wasn't an easy read. No, a very... a book to be read and very interesting and important, but it's not exactly an easy or an enjoyable read. It's definitely interesting, but I wouldn't exactly say it was enjoyable. Sometimes we read things not because we want to be entertained, but because we want to walk in someone else's shoes. We want to experience something that we could never experience. And this story is definitely that kind of narrative, isn't it? You get to, well, not experience it, but to find out about something that perhaps you just would never even know about if he hadn't written about it. Yes, very much so. I had 
I mean, when he talks about going to work and you've got this, I think he was 14, 15, 16, somewhere around there, just merrily handling bleach with no no breathing protection or anything. And I'm thinking, oh, dear, oh, dear. That it would not that would not settle now, and also the the racism issues that do rear their head again and again in different ways. That is a theme that runs through the whole book. Uh, it's such an important part of his life that I think at first the authorities and his foster families almost tried to suppress that it wasn't an issue, but it did constantly become an issue, and it was. Uh, interesting to see him embracing that and finding sort of solidarity in that as he grew older. One of the themes about in this story is about the family and how they reject him. It's quite shocking, really. I mean, apologies, it's a bit of a spoiler, but because it's a true narrative, I can't give too much of a spoiler. But yeah, that was a very powerful part of this whole story, really, was the treatment by the family. I can understand the basic dry bones facts as to why they gave up on him and, and sent him away because they were very strictly Christian and that was obviously their heart, soul and bone marrow. And he wasn't, in spite of having grown up with them, he didn't chime well with that and it, it didn't suit him. But at the same time, you raise this child from very, very, very small, pretty much birth, and then you just pack them off. That was one thing that really stuck with me to the point it's written in large letters in my notes, is that he absolutely catches the complete mental confusion when he's being removed from them, sort of expecting to go back and waiting to go back, and then it never happens. And then he reveals that, oh, sorry, big spoiler, that he never hears from any of them again, even Christopher, who's his brother and not they're not that different in age. And then of course he goes on to be in the children's home, which is something like a maximum security prison for children that haven't committed a crime. I mean, it's completely appalling really. One thing I that stuck was that even that the social worker was saying that he really shouldn't be there and he really shouldn't be sent there in the first place. But I don't know quite why the Maybe it was just finance, the powers that be, send him there anyway, when it's really not. Children shouldn't grow up in that sort of place. They need families of some kind or some sort of family structure. It did seem to be that time and time again, that semantics turned normal childhood behaviour into problematic behaviours. And that somehow seemed to excuse the, the violence and the trauma that was inflicted on him. Like when the official document said that he threatened to kill all his family, which sounds absolutely awful. But then when you hear the other side of it and you think it was just him saying to his younger brother, I'll kill you when he got him into trouble for something in the midst of an argument, which is a really different matter. It's just normal teen teenage behaviour. You look at how he's how he's bundled from pillar to post, all sorts of different places. Who wouldn't be putting up walls and constantly grumpy? You don't actually have a ple you don't have a sense of where you are. You're constantly you're constantly mentally looking over your shoulder. It makes you realise how powerless children are and how their voices aren't heard. I think that's one of the things that really came across. You hear all these things being written in the report, you hear what the social workers say. Um, and yes, we're hearing his views now because he's writing the story, but you, it makes you realise how little he was listened to as a child. And 
you know, the fact that he's gone on to be this poet and this writer, he has used that skill, that talent to voice an experience that so many, well, people maybe obviously would have had at the same time, but couldn't share. So really, it's a, he's provided this incredible spotlight on um, something in our society, which really we should be quite ashamed of, really. He touches on that with the, was it the blog towards the end? And people commented back to basically this, not quite yes, me too, but when he put up the blog about everything that had gone on and people were saying, or saying, yes, similar things have happened and I can't talk about it, but by proxy I'll talk about it. When they do mention talking to him and or oh, and to the family, it's a whole it's a whole central thing. You wonder how much of even what he says to the social worker, who is albeit the adult in his life, will be somewhat filtered because particularly when you're sort of in that middle age of teens and sort of old child, young teen, middle teen, you won't always just say things to adults, even if you're feeling them. You'll, and when you've been through pillar and post, you'll fil- surely you'll filter what you're saying up to a point. The toads element comes to mind when his foster mother would call him a toad and then immediately call her son a toad as well. Mm-hmm. You wonder how much of that was covering and filtering and presenting things perfectly. Like the incident where he was almost electrocuted in the bath, but they reported it as him and his sister because they didn't want it to look like they'd badly treated him while they hadn't badly treated their um, biological children. Yeah, I, I was really struck by him talking about the slipperiness of, of memory when in care. I was really moved by that story when he's taken to see the show with Lenny Henry and he looks back on that time and he doesn't quite remember, did it really happen? And he had to kind of look up and check the details to see that it had because there's no one to recall them with you when you're in care. There's no one, everyone sort of passes in and out. So I was just going to read a little bit where he's talking about that because I thought it was so beautifully written. Um, He talks about, in a few months, I would be in a different home with a different set of people who had no idea of this moment. How could it matter if no one recalls it? Given that staff don't take photographs, it was impossible to take something away as a memory. This is how you become invisible. It is the underlying unkindness that you don't matter enough. This is how you quietly deplete the sense of self-worth deep inside a child's psyche. This is how a child becomes hidden in plain sight. That's such a powerful extract from the book. I'm glad you included it in the roundtable because I think just hearing that makes me want to go back and just listen to the story all over again because I was really moved by this story and I enjoyed enjoyed reading it, but I'd definitely read it again. Mm, he does write beautifully. We touched briefly on this earlier, but did you enjoy the use of poetry as well as the reports from the care home and the local authority and how are they all tied together oh the poetry was very good it would often strike a, of course because he put the poems there but it would strike a chord with what came along in that chapter it was very well tied it wasn't just poetry for poetry's sake it was a very good poetry that struck a chord in its own right and it tied in very well with the stories and the facts yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think it was quite a, an unusual but very beautiful way of telling a story, writing a book, uh, creating a memoir. Um, I think for that, 
as well. That's another reason, as well as the extraordinary story, why our listeners should definitely pick this one up and listen to it while it's available this month. Yeah, I think it's worth reflecting too that uh, what an extraordinary achievement, not just writing in this book and surviving that childhood, but what he's gone on to achieve with his, you'd have thought his self-identity would be so diminished. And yet he's made some incredible achievements since then. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, he was um, the official poet of the 2012 London Olympics. He's also been the Chancellor of the University of Manchester since 2015, I believe. And he was also awarded the 2019 Penn Pinter Prize, where previous recipients have been Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie. That's a fairly elite company. Okay. Well, I think that's um, that's a really succinct conversation that summarises what I think we all, would all agree was a, an incredible read. Or listen, if you're listening on Box. Read in inverted commas. As well as My Name Is Why, there's quite a few other new unlimited titles on Box this month. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here. There's A Thousand Ships by Natalie Hayes, which is another retelling of a classic tale. It draws parallels between the lives of the women in the Trojan War and modern attitudes to gender. Uh, The Muse by Jessie Burton is another of the unlimited titles. It's been described as an unforgettable novel about aspiration and identity, love and obsession, authenticity and deception. As always, one of these featured titles for September is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's the book we've just been talking about, My Name is Why by Lem Sisse. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. There's just time to say thanks to Borrow Box for helping to support this year's Summer Reading Challenge, which is just drawing to a close now. Don't forget, how could you? You can use Borrow Box to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mary Stone. And I'm Kate Price McCarthy. 